morning. Okay. So. So we're working through this series on vocation. As I've been saying, I want to do this so that we can clarify the doctrine of Christian calling in order that we may develop a more God-centered view of our faith, ourselves, and our responsibilities. Keep, keep in mind 11, Romans 11:36. 11, because this is going to rub against our sinful human natures to want to be completely in control or to want to speak in a way that still gives us some kind of um, <clears throat> you know, agency that makes us feel good about ourselves. But truly, when we're talking today, as we're talking about the two different kinds of graces and the two different kinds of kingdoms, it's all from the Lord, it's all through Him, it's all for His glory. Um, and then also keep this question and answer in mind. How does God glorify Himself? He glorifies Himself by accomplishing His purposes. His purposes. It's not our purposes. Um, by accomplishing His purposes in His works, not our works, of common grace. It's His work. Common grace is God's grace. It's not our grace. It's God's grace. And special grace. As Calvinists, we say amen to that. And so last week, what was that? So that was now this is the third week. We're trying to distinguish between, uh, before we get to more properly the doctrine of calling, we're trying to distinguish between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And last week we did that by distinguishing between two different kinds of words, law and gospel. And I won't cover any of that. I won't review that at all. This morning, I want to further distinguish between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission by making a dis- <coughs> excuse me by making a distinction. They're very similar, but I still think they should be under separate headings, or they should be two separate headings. Two different kinds of kingdoms. Well, actually, that'll be second, uh, and two different kinds of graces. Any theologians want to guess at what? The, uh, the two graces are, if you're familiar with that language. I already said it. Common and special grace. So I, I don't want you to cheat. Um, <clears throat> so let's start with two kingdoms. Um, common grace and special grace. And when I say special grace, um, I think... I think the historical term, it could also mean natural revelation. Um, Special grace. uh, I'm sorry. Another word you could use to explain common would be natural grace. Maybe. Arguably. And another word you could use to describe special grace would be um, special revelation. And at least there's a there's a strong relationship between common grace and special grace and natural revelation and special revelation. There's a strong relationship if if they're not identical in many ways. 
Um, and I'll, I'll say one more thing. Special revelation is the historical word that we use or historical term, special revelation. But what do I mean when I say, well, I'm going to explain it. So I, I, I'll tell you another word that I find helpful to explain special revelation. And, and I'm probably going to use this word instead of special revelation as I, as I go through. Um, another word you could use is redemptive revelation. Okay? So this is, I think that will become clear in just a moment. But I'll, let me show you real quick. <clears throat> we're we're going to be looking, Lord willing. I have recorded down here a lot of verses. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the Bible this morning. This is a go-to text. Go to Psalm 19. And these are the general categories. This is the text really where a lot of theologians, Joel Beakey's uh, Reformed Systematic Theology, he spends a tremendous amount of time as he's making a distinction between those two. He kind of camps out on that text for chapters and chapters. Psalm 19. So th this is where the evangelical church has largely gotten this idea to the Christian church by and large. Did you say 19 or 119? 19. Um, of natural and special revelation, common special grace. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So it does reveal. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber, and like a strong man, Runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So this natural revelation does a lot. It does reveal. Uh, it says the glory of God. Okay. But then verse 7 <coughs> shows, and it says law here, but it, I do believe it is, it's referring to um, redemptive revelation as a whole. Okay, um, it's going to go on to explain God's revelation that He speaks from outside of the created order. God speaks into the created order. And notice, um, this might not be the best word. Notice how much more efficacious and how much more powerful and how much more this word accomplishes than natural revelation does. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. Even the honey in natural in the natural creation is sweeter than, than this world. And drippings of the honeycomb, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. So um, I just wanted to read that so that you'd understand so that you just see the categories or see the biblical basis for those categories. Does anyone not see that there? Anyone think that's a stretch in Psalm nineteen? I think it's 
I think it's fairly self-explanatory. So using those, first, let's ask or try to answer the question of whether or not there's a difference in uh, pre-fall natural revelation and post-fall natural revelation. Uh, we've spent some time on this, so I'll just say it and move on. Pre-fall natural revelation, meaning the revelation that was available to man in just by virtue of being created, um, is is best stated this way. It's it's the the moral law of God stamped upon the conscience of His created uh, <clears throat> of those. Uh, of hu of human beings as image bearers, okay. To be an image bearer of God would be to reflect His character, and so whatever it means to be moral and upright for God, which cannot be abstracted from His character. If He's going to create somebody in His image, He's going to create them um, in a way that what's right. Um, for God would be right for us. That's that would be what is moral. To not be that way is to not be uh, an appropriate image bearer. Um, so that's pre-fall natural revelation. We've talked about that Romans two. I, be, I believe that that's summed up in the Ten Commandments for us. Um, it's the law of God written upon our consciences. Romans talks about a lot. After the fall, though, there is great debate about how. Um, we ought to think what the scriptures say about how Christians, um, not Christians, how people born into sin relate to that knowledge that they have by virtue of being created in God's image. There's a lot of discussion that surrounds that and probably will for hundreds more, hundreds of years more. Um, Um, we've read this before, so I'm not going to go there. I'll just kind of quote it, paraphrase it. You can look this up later. Um, but I, I will say that the image of God cannot be lost, but it can be marred and twisted. Um, and we can subvert the knowledge that we do have. We can subvert that natural law that is available to us, stamped on our consciences. Um, and that, therefore, redemption doesn't introduce new law, but it actually renews um, us as image bearers, right? And so think again in those terms of the first and second Adam that we talked about last week. Adam was created, moral law uh, stamped upon his conscience, falls, and his posterity um, after him, after the fall, are born with that law, but it's twisted and it's it's um, just all marred. But the image is not lost. The law is not lost, but it's just clouded by their sin. A technical term we refer to this as uh, the noetic effects of the fall. What how, the kinds of effects that the fall has on the intellect to know uh, what is right and wrong. Um, <clears throat> so the second Adam. Therefore, is not going is is not another human species. He's a human, but he is another uh, race, right? So it's this is another um, this is the new creation. It's not a it's not an entirely different creation. It's just 
the old made new and renewed and and uh the leech of sin in the new creation is removed and the and the twisting becomes untwisted over time um and i get this from ephesians 4 24 you can look that up later and it says that we're being renewed the image of god in us is being renewed and then you might wonder well what constitutes the image of god and it says uh Two of these three. I can't remember exactly which three, but uh, which two, but two of these three knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Righteousness is certainly in Ephesians 4.24. We're being renewed in righteousness in Christ. That tells us that whatever is being renewed was there before, but messed up, and now it's being renewed. And so um, then um, so that's <clears throat> The next thing I want to say is that the the first the first promise, the first deliverance, the first publication that this uh, renewal is going to come about is uh, in the promise of Christ. We mentioned last week Genesis three fifteen. Okay, I, I think we looked at Genesis three fifteen, didn't we? We read it. Um, so since we read that, now turn with me to Ephesians two twelve. I'll read this and then try to put to state simply what I'm trying to say. Actually, read verse 11, Ephesians 2.11. It's in the middle of that sentence there. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Israel, think Israel, and strangers to, you can say appropriately, their covenants of promise. This is Israel's covenants of promise. Let me state simply what I'm, what I'm trying to say. You have natural law, and then you have the fall and some significant twisting of the image of God. And then you have God acting in a way that had not been communicated to his creation that he would act. All he did was promise life upon perfect obedience and threaten death upon disobedience. And then, after the disobedience, he publishes the promise in Genesis 3.15. And without getting into the technical nitty-gritty, I believe, and I think you should believe, that that promise is what's being referred to in Ephesians 2.12. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the seed promise of the second Adam, is then developed throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures leading up to Christ. Which means that the Old Testament is a Christian book that contains the promise of Christ. All of God's redemptive acts throughout human history are, re- are all of God's acts in human history after the fall are redemptive in nature. And then Scripture, the Old Testament scriptures included, is simply God's inscripturated, recorded interpretation of those redemptive acts throughout human history. 
but it all centers upon Christ, okay? Leading up to it. Every single one of the covenants that we see in the Old Testament has some significant relationship to Christ, especially the covenants given to Israel. They, are, they all are covenants that contain the promise. They're holding the promise, protecting and developing the promise. Um, so, any questions about that? Am I being clear? And I, and I think, going back to Psalm 19, that, that that comports with this. You have natural law by virtue of the created order. But Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The, the, the inscripturated interpretation of God's redemptive acts, that which, re, that which God reveals outside of the fall to his people, that revives the soul. That enlightens the eyes. This is that which renews the, the fallen, broken creation. Okay, And it's only by the power of that special revelation that that renewal can come about too, by the way. Natural law can't do it. Natural law can't change the heart. Only God's um, redemptive acts in, in time and recorded in Scripture can actually change the heart. Okay? Um, so common grace and natural revelation provide the standards and indicatives for how all people, including Christians, ought to conduct themselves in the kingdom of creation to this day. Because common grace and natural revelation doesn't go away. It's still there. It's just twisted, right? So it's still the standard for mankind. And so, and when I say indicative, uh, it's just a statement of fact, okay? Um, so what standard has been revealed for the common kingdom of creation? You just tell me real quick. What standard has been revealed for the common kingdom of creation? Let's just get it in our minds, say it out loud. The Ten Commandments. Every every society is held accountable to the Ten Commandments. Every every um, every when we talk about politics and education, everything should be gauged if this is true by the Ten Commandments. It's the standard. Of course, the two tables apply in different ways, but that's the standard because that's natural law. Okay, and you might think, well, the Ten Commandments are in Scripture, and isn't that part of Scripture? In scripture and revelation, yes. But here's here's a helpful way to think about it. The Ten Commandments is a is a, a summary in inscripturated form of the things we already know. Right? You follow me? And that's part of Paul's argument in Romans two. The Ten Commandments is available to both Jews and Gentiles. They all have it upon their consciences. But the Jews have it on the inside and the outside. That's the whole point. So, yes, the Ten Commandments are in special revelation because 
They are written in a letter. They're written in summary form in Special Revelation. So you, this entire book then, as Bavink said, can be summed up under two principal heads. It's made up of two principal parts. Anytime you read the Bible, you're reading law or gospel because that is what sums up Special Revelation. It's either a summary or clarification of the law or it's a declaration of gospel. Okay? So, that's the standard that the common kingdom of creation is held to. Then what's the indicative? Let me, let me read this again so you're not losing me. Common grace and natural revelation provide the standards and the indicatives or the standard and the indicative for how all people should conduct themselves in creation. The standards, the moral law. So what's the indicative? You tell me. What is, you think about it, what should be the indicative that motivates citizens of the kingdom of creation as they obey the standard? What should motivate all people? There might be other ways you say this, other things you could add. But I'll say God's kind and merciful providence. I'd say common grace is the indicative. That, that's one major motivator for citizens of the kingdom of creation. It's a motivator even for Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of creation still. Living in this world motivated by the kind providence of God which we'll talk more about uh, one of these coming weeks. We'll talk about the providence of God in invocation. Matthew 5.45, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and that's a motivator for everyone upon whom the rain falls to love this God and obey his commandments. And of course, that's one motivator for Christians, and there's gospel motivators as well. We'll talk about it in just a moment. So, um, that's that's how common grace and natural revelation provide the standard and the indicative um, for how citizens of the common kingdom of creation ought to conduct themselves. But then you have special and redemptive revelation, right? Two. That's we just talked about natural created order. Let's let's move now and say special and redemptive revelation provides standards and, and indicatives for their citizens as well. Kingdom of by the way, we're going to talk in just a moment about the two kingdoms. I might be losing you because you're like, we've been talking about revelation and grace, but you're mentioning now these two different kingdoms. I'll, do, I'll clarify the two kingdoms in just a moment. But I'll, I'll, what I'm trying to say is you have, you have two kingdoms, the kingdom of creation and the kingdom of Christ. And in those kingdoms, you have standards and indicatives things they ought to do and you have motivators according to scripture so what standard has been revealed for the holy kingdom of Christ what should govern the holy kingdom of Christ and I, let me say something real quick holy uh, meaning it's not common so you have the, the common kingdom of creation I've been saying you have the holy kingdom of Christ so what's the uh, um, standard revealed for the holy kingdom of Christ? What should govern us? 
Ten Commandments, absolutely. Where do, where do we read the Ten Commandments? Scripture. Scripture. I, I so I would say that very generally, what um, <clears throat> what governs. I'll, yeah, I'll just say scripture. Scripture is the highest authority of the kingdom of Christ. It governs the people of God. Um, and in that wonderful book is the summary of God's laws, the Ten Commandments. So the law and the gospel um, is the standard. It is the authority um, which reveals, which um, governs the church. And um, it gets a little uh, tricky, which I'll explain in just a moment. Um, so, any thoughts on that? Are you making a distinction between what governs unbelievers and what governs believers as being different? In the kingdoms, yeah. What governs the kingdoms? There, you're saying there's expectations for Christians that God doesn't hold unbelievers accountable to? Yes. Like preaching the gospel. And um, we'll get, the, let's do that now and you'll see why, um, what are some of the things. Um, I don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I was typing something. I think I lost a chunk of text because I had a Luther quote, and then I was just like, where'd that go? So I had to go find it again. So something's missing here. Um, I asked the question, what indicatives should motivate the citizens of the holy kingdom of Christ as they obey, um, as they conform? That's a good way of putting it. Conform their lives to Scripture, to special revelation. Um, and here's... You know, there's a text that would uh, kind of scratch at this. Where is it? I mean, I don't know where that thing went. It's in, I do remember, it's in 1 Corinthians 8. says, um, it's talking about the conduct. I'm warming up to this kind of language more and more as I, as I think about the two kingdoms. There is... Um, I think a helpful distinction to make between the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth nature of um, you know, civil society in the created order, if you kill, you know, kill the killers. And there's, you know, you read the Proverbs, which largely deals with the righteous and how the wise and righteous man conducts his life, and he's fair and he's just, and... Um, the, the world would use the language what goes around comes around. But we live in a just and fair world. God's just and fair world. And yet, um, there's something unique, I would say, that it is introduced by the grace of God in the gospel. And it... Um, I don't want to say much more than that. So I'll, I'll, I'll just make this distinction. 
Jesus is playing with this idea and doing something with it I don't want to be very dogmatic about. But he, he says on the Sermon on the Mount, you, you've heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, turn the cheek. And that Christian, that is a Christian ethic. For Christ, Christians ought to not only be just and fair and give honor to whom honor is due, right? But there, there is an expectation. I'd say Jesus expects and holds, um, he, he demands that Christians be forgiving and turn the cheek and suffer. Um, so there's something there about um, the king, th those citizens who are citizens of the kingdom of Christ um, being judged or, or ah, mm. if you do not forgive you will not be forgiven you are expected um, you are held to some kind of a higher moral standard in, in some way um, expected that because of the gospel because the gospel is motivating you you ought to therefore live in such a forgiving cheek turning kind of way like Jesus which is not inconsistent with the moral law at all but there's there is there's something unique about that Christian ethic I, I'm I'm just warming up to that that's a lot of that language comes from um, David Van Drunen and Michael Horton and they're, they're kind of arguing for as the nation of Israel comes to a close and uh, many of those laws pass away and the kingdom of Christ is being inaugurated. Oh, maybe not inaugurated is the right word, but the, the church is being instituted. There is um, a, uh, a Christian ethic that is not contrary to the ethic that had been seen before, um, but in, in some sense is, is, a, is heightened. Um, so here are some things in addition to that Christian ethic here are some things um, that, we, that the church must do in the, king, the kingdom of Christ the church is the outpost of the kingdom of Christ so but citizens of the kingdom of Christ must do these things we must make disciples the church must make disciples through the public ministry of the word Jesus says in Matthew 28 and through baptism um, that command from Jesus is not part of natural law. Jesus specially reveals it. Right? It's not contrary to natural law. I'm not saying it's contrary. I'm not, there's, there's a wonderful relationship between the two but I'm saying that citizens of the kingdom of creation are not held to that standard. That is a standard placed upon citizens of the kingdom of Christ to make disciples and to be baptized. Unbelievers are not judged for baptism in the way that Christians are because they're not citizens of the kingdom of Christ. You, you could say that if an unbeliever, in fact, if an unbeliever becomes baptized and they're not actually a believer. In fact, they're judged for saying that they're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, and they are not. It is not. It does not behoove unbelievers to observe baptism. They mustn't. They must be believers first, or they will be judged 
Paul talks, the Lord's Supper is a command, uniquely given, special revelation from Jesus to the church. And if you're not a believer and you partake of the Lord's Supper, you will be judged because you mustn't as an unbeliever. You're not a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. You mustn't partake of the Lord's Supper. And, um, and, and Paul talks about receiving and giving. He's, giving. he's received revelation as an apostle and he's now commanding citizens of the kingdom of Christ. What does he say about the Lord's Supper? I received from the Lord and I delivered it to you. The Lord's Supper, not expected of government. <laughs> it's expected of the church. And Paul is one of the highest authorities in the church, you know, under Jesus. Paul is an authority in the church, a church officer. And he's saying, I had revelation given to me and I'm giving it to you and you must do this if you are a Christian. Yeah, that, that text is talking about the, the Lord's Supper because he's, verse 24, um, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance for me, of me. That is, a, that, is a, that is a command that belongs under the category of special revelation that governs the church. Okay. And our conduct kind of been talking about this up to this point conduct in worship um, according to Colossians 2 it let's go to Colossians 2 let's go to Colossians 2 it, it mustn't be governed by the ways of the world or the as you're turning there think of this think of this that there's as far as the, as far as it is considered a kingdom what is the standard that governs the citizens of the kingdom of Christ? In the kingdom of creation, if you violate the standards of that kingdom, there are penalties. But there's something distinctive about the Christian ethic because of the gospel, right? If you sin and you repent in the church... You do not experience penalty. You see what I'm saying? The church must forgive you. But if you violate the standard in the kingdom of creation and you steal and say you're sorry, you still have to pay the penalty. There's some unique ethic in the kingdom of Christ where we're commanded actually to forgive and not exercise judgment upon the person that's repenting. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, in Colossians 2, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism of worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It is, uh, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used. 
according to human precepts and teachings. These all have an appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. People love to make up commands and impose them upon the church. But the commands given, the church ought not be regulated according to human inventions using purely natural reason and natural revelation, like po political governments must be. But the church must be regulated according to Scripture alone. That's what Paul is saying. And they seem wise. Why do they seem wise? Because we're using our natural, we're using natural revelation to determine what we should do in worship. What does it mean to obey God in worship and in the church? If we were to use natural revelation only as it regarded life in the church, and someone committed adultery in the church against another church member, natural reason alone, which is good, according to God's just rules, would say, get out of the church. Well, I'm sorry. Well, get out of the church. You are hurting this community. And for the good and the sake of the community, you must leave. But Christ actually commands us, if the brother repents, we must admit him into the church and embrace him and restore him or her. And this applies to worship, too. We use natural reason and revelation. Well, how do you grow a business? You need to use natural re revelation and wisdom to grow a business, right? But we're but this is the church. And so it must be governed by what God commands. And so although it might seem wise to do this thing or embrace this model because it's going to grow the church, but you can't go based off of human precepts and regulations and Whatever. You must go based off of what God has commanded the church as the institution to do. Right? Scripture is what governs the kingdom of Christ. Okay? The, the law and the gospel is that which the church should conform itself to. Not human precepts. Um... What do you guys think of that? I mean, do you have any thoughts or questions about any of that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking, is it is it so much that unbelievers aren't held to that standard? Or is it that they, the difference is that they are unable to do those things and Christians are unable to? So I'm thinking in terms of like, say there's an illegal immigrant. If they live in this country, they're expected to pay taxes, contribute to society. Can't. They don't have a social security number. They're unable to contribute to society because they're not a valid citizen. But that doesn't take away the expectation for them to obey the laws and contribute to society. They just are unable to because they're not citizens. So in the same way, is, is an unbeliever, I mean, if, if an unbeliever is expected, if, if sin is missing the mark of holiness, mm -hmm. then 
would it be inaccurate to say that unbelievers are expected to preach the gospel? Because that's what holiness is. That's what the mark is. They are expected to um, be just and forgiving in a Christian way. They just can't. I, I guess I'm, if, if the Ten Commandments is a summary of what is expected of humanity, mm-hmm. then would that not include, even for the believer, unbeliever, I mean, all of yeah. what believers are commanded to do, is a believer, an unbeliever expected to partake of the sacraments? They just can't because their their hearts have not been changed in, in, in a way that they can do it the right way, but they're still expected to. They just can't. Well, I, that's what I'm trying to... to yeah. I, let, let's just use baptism as an example of if an unbeliever was baptized and they weren't a believer. Hence why I said the word unbeliever. If they were baptized, that would be an illegal obtaining of citizenship. They shouldn't do that. So, um, and this might be helpful. I've, I've said this before. I believe that all the scriptures I just read about the Lord's Supper and worship and church discipline, all of that is actually an application of the second commandment. So it's part of natural law. What is the, nat- what is the second commandment in some? The second commandment is only worship God according to how he has commanded. And that, you know, all people are expected and held to that standard. So there is a sense in which unbelievers ought to do those things, correct? But they shouldn't illegally do them. They should do them by becoming citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And, the, and that's really where the rubber meets the road is they're judged for not believing the gospel and not becoming citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Um, however, citizens in the kingdom of Christ... Um, are expected to, properly speaking, observe the Lord's Supper and to be baptized and to not do so would be sin because they have believed the gospel. However, unbelievers, they are not expected, properly speaking, to partake of the Lord's Supper and be baptized. It's actually sin for them to do that because they're unbelievers. However, they are commanded to believe the gospel and follow the commandments of their Savior, which would then mean baptism in the Lord's Supper. Does that make some sense? Yeah. I'm not trying to pretend like this is all cut and dry and clean. I'm just trying to give some categories. Yeah, no, I I, I see what you're saying. I'm trying to think of a way to explain it because I guess what's rubbing me the wrong way is just saying there's a different standard for Christians than there is for unbelievers. Yeah. Like it, it seems to me that there's one standard, and mm-hmm. you either meet that standard or you don't. Well, and here's the thing. I am not separating the kingdoms. I'm making a distinction between the kingdoms. Okay? And go, go, what are we trying to do? What is this three-part excursus in our series attempting to do? Make a distinction between the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Not separate them, but just make sure that we're speaking clearly about them so that we're not blending them together in an unhelpful way. You see what I'm saying? So you think it's more, and, and this is nuanced, but it, it's more than just believers are able to keep the commandment in, in a way that unbelievers aren't. That there's, in, in addition to just the nature ability, there is some sort of different expectation. Yes, I mean to not exercise church discipline is a sin. If the church does not do that, they're not being faithful citizens of the kingdom of Christ. 
So I like saying it, I accidentally said it earlier this way, that the church ought to conform itself to the scriptures, which um, records and preserves God's law and God's gospel. Um, let's, see how, let's see how much I can do. Any other questions? Why do I think we need to recover the distinction between grace, the graces and revelations we've discussed? Um, if we confuse common and special grace, we'll fail to recognize how special revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can change hearts. That's one major thing. Um, I'm sure there are a number of others. That's the one I decided to write down. Okay. <laughs> Scripture, Psalm 19. It revives the soul. It enlightens the eyes. It is perfect. It is sweeter than honey. Because the sun that it describes going to and from the one end of the from the east to the west, it's beautiful. It doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your heart. So listen to this quote from Luther as he's trying to, I think, kind of over uh, or maps onto this idea pretty well. I, I oppose indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. He's not in... Uh, had I decided... Had I desired to foment trouble... I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany if he wanted the church to just overtake the world and overturn the world. Indeed, I could have started with I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Fool's play. I did nothing. The word did the work. So we want to be and you said it, Abel Joseph. We want to be careful to say that. Um, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture, which enables people in in the kingdom of Christ, um, and and changes them and brings them into the kingdom of Christ. And it's that standard which they are held accountable to. Um, it's a good quote. Let's do quickly the common kingdom of creation. We did the common and special grace, common kingdom of creation, and the holy kingdom of Christ. I can actually do this, I think, fairly quickly. Can I can I just reference the passages? Except for one. There is one I want to go to. I've said this before, so I'm okay with blowing through it a little quickly. The create the kingdom of creation, kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Christ. There's the there's the kingdom of creation pre-fall. And all of these things are built on covenant. So the covenant of works in the kingdom of creation. We looked at that last week. There's, then there's the kingdom of creation post-fall. And what's interesting is between Genesis 3 and Genesis chapter 9, 
You've, you've got a lot of common grace. God is just being very merciful. <laughs> okay? But what I believe is that immediately after Genesis 3, immediately after Genesis 3, you see um, the Noahic covenant in seed form in Genesis 4. Let's go to Genesis 4 real quickly. And I get this from a man named Meredith Klein. He kind of had that idea of some, something like that. This is the beginnings of what we, un, we come to understand later is civil government. Because we need the civil government in a fallen world, don't we? And we've just seen a man kill a man. And in God's response to it. Um, so uh, what verse after he kills after um, Cain kills his brother in verse 10 the Lord said what have you done the voice of your brother, brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand when you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth Cain said to the Lord my punishment is greater than I can bear uh, you've driven me away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then God puts a mark on him so that he'll be protected. So I'm not going to say a lot there. I'm not an expert on that passage. I'm leaning. I'm not very smart. I'm leaning on Meredith Klein who says there's something here that God is beginning to lay down principles that develop for us which we'll turn now to Genesis chapter 9 to see what develops into um, the civil government covenantally okay covenantally um, Okay, so uh, verse 12 of Genesis 9. This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and your descendants, Noah. Is that what it says? What does it say? The earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, then I will be my, my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature, including birds. This is not a covenant of grace that we are in as Christians. Like, this is not the covenant, the new covenant. This does not mean that all living, all living creatures are in Christ. This is a unique covenant that establishes common grace in the kingdom of creation. Every living creature. Every living creature that's on the earth. And that covenantally is the foundation for civil government to function. Uh, 
Um, I pray you don't get lost. It's, I'm going to say a couple of things here. Abraham was a citizen of the kingdoms of creation and Christ. <coughs> you see Abraham making deals with other na nations around him, other leaders. But then you have the kingdom of Israel, right? Built on the covenant, and the covenants there are Abraham, Moses, and David. The people of Israel were citizens of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Christ. Weren't, weren't they? The, the, those who, so you had people in the kingdom of Israel. This is a better way to put it. Who were citizens of the kingdom of Christ because they believed in the promise. And they were citizens of the kingdom of Israel. But then they get kicked out of the land and they're no longer citizens of the kingdom of Israel anymore. They're the nation, but they are now exiles. And they are then in that moment like their father Abraham who was a citizen of the kingdom of creation and those who believed in the promise. They were dual citizens. And look at this later. Go look at Jeremiah 29 and read that language. What does God tell them to do as exiles in a foreign land? The Israelites. Does he tell them to take over Babylon? Does God tell the Israelites to overturn Babylon? No, he says go there and work and build. Does he tell them to institute the laws that belong to the people of Israel? Mm -mm. No. He says submit to their laws. And that's a pattern for us because we're not part of a, a theocratic nation. We're exiles too. Peter calls us exiles in his epistle. So we're like Abraham in that sense. And we're like the exiled people of Israel. Then there's the kingdom of Christ. And we've talked about it, so I'm not going to explain it. I think you understand. Let me end with this quote from Luther. He says, because we want, we, we are, I recommend you read this book. I don't always recommend books a lot, but this is really easy to read. Really, really easy to read. And if this interests you, what I've been talking about, um, this is a really distilled version of a much more technical book that he wrote. Both of these kingdoms, the kingdom of creation and the kingdom of Christ, they're Christ's kingdoms. <laughs> right? But they're distinct. They're distinct. And, and we live as Christians in both of them. And uh, it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. And we want to maintain that distinction. And listen to what Luther has to say about the importance of maintaining the distinction between them. The devil not, never stops cooking and brewing these two kingdoms into each other. In the devil's name, the secular leaders always want to be Christ's masters and teach him how he should run his church and spiritual government. Similarly, the false clerics and schismatic spirits always want to be the masters of the world although without God's approval, and teach people how to organize secular government. This is, this is why you want to maintain a distinction between the two. The world wants to tell the church how to run its show, and the church wants to tell the world how to run its show. And what Luther is saying is, as separate institutions, you need to get out of each other's business and recognize that um, Scripture... You have to be very careful here. A lot of people talk like this. Scripture, very technically speaking, using those categories, 
does not govern political government. It governs a church. Um, so we don't want to radically separate them, but we want to maintain a distinction. Any thoughts or questions that I'll pray? Anything at all? As always, I'm shocked that we were able to get through it. So that's it for the distinction between the Great Commandment and Great Commission. And I think next week we'll talk about the providence of God. I think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for helping us to think clearly about this. And we ask um, that it would impact our lives and help us to be faithful, faithful citizens of the kingdoms that we are in. Loving and serving the church and loving and serving our neighbor and our callings. Help us to, to continue to think clearly and I pray, Father, they would mold our hearts. These, these truths from your word would mold our hearts and help us um, as, we are, as we try to um, continue progressing as pilgrims on the way to glory. In Jesus' name, amen.